We talk about our relationship with God, our life with God here every Sunday. Of being saved from eternity and hopelessness and agony and being blessed instead with forever with the giver of life and the creator of all things good and holy. We talk about that now because that's what consumes our life. Our relationship with God is, is what we're all about. Everything else is secondary. And our, through our relationship with him, everything else pours out of that. So whether we have a relationship with him or, without, or if we don't, our lives reflect that. So we talk about those, we talk about eternity. We talk about being blessed forever with the giver of life and the creator of all things holy. Have you ever thought about what it means to be blessed? It's one of those words, one of those Bible words that happens over and over and over again. Kind of like the gospel or salvation or grace. And they're words that you hear, but do you fully understand what that means? And do you fully understand what it means in scriptural terms to be blessed? Because I can say I'm, I'm blessed to have great kids, or I'm, I'm blessed to be able to ride a bicycle. Or I was blessed that I didn't get in that car accident. But there's something deeper to blessing. <clears throat> Jacob thought a blessing was quite valuable. I mean, he deceived his father to receive one, yes? (laughs) He deceived his father Isaac to steal a greater blessing from his brother Esau. The angel of the Lord told Abraham that because of his faithful obedience, not to withhold his son, that he would bless him and make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So in that instance, it was a blessing that hadn't yet come. He told Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because Abraham obeyed God. So you can be blessed on behalf of somebody else, specifically Abraham in this matter. And that's actually talking about somebody else, even even go deeper into that. Isaac, Jacob's father, was recognized as being blessed by the Lord by the people he lived nearby. Like King Abilamech, they were afraid of him because they knew that he was blessed by the Lord. And so others could observe the blessing that God had given them. Seen as something nice to say to someone or a declaration that would direct future events, blessings are numerous in Scripture. Genesis 49 and 48, for that matter, were seen as Jacob's monument to his faith. If you look in in Hebrews, you will see the list of the patriarchs, the list of the great faithful men. Under Jacob's, there could have been a lot of things put in that list, but Jacob's was of him blessing his sons, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So if Jacob sees blessing as significant, it must be of great significance. Let's check it out. Genesis 49. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen in the days to come. 
Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. So what do we know so far? Are these things that are happening today or things that will be in the future, right? Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters you will no longer excel. For you went up into your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. That's a very interesting first blessing, right? That doesn't sound good at all. That sounds actually terrible. Reuben as the firstborn was entitled to the birthright and to the greater blessing as the firstborn. But here a positive blessing is stripped from because of his past actions. This is a reference to what happened in chapter 35, verse 22. It's a short little line. Essentially, Reuben stole something that was not his that belonged to his father. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, which is interesting that they're paired together, right? Why are they paired together? Anybody know? You're going to look back in Genesis and see what their action together is. Their swords are weapon of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. This is referencing what they did to uh, the people who defiled Dinah, their sister. You know, the Levites, what's going to happen to these guys in the future? Well, we know from Scripture that the Levites would not gain their own land, but that they would live among all of the tribes. Now, I had a picture at the beginning. Uh, Bob, can you go back to that picture just a few slides so we can kind of talk about that? Because I kind of skipped that over. So this picture, he'll kind of zoom in on it a little bit. This is a, a picture of the uh, estimated boundaries of the tribes of Israel. So some of these are not accurate because some of those places don't exist anymore. So we can't bring references for places that, that don't exist anymore, that we don't have or have not been discovered uh, through archaeology of where they stand. So we have Asher up here in the northwest, Naphtali right here in the center next to the Sea of Galilee. Zebulon is just to its left. Issachar is just down below. These are the names of the sons. Manessa is on the west, and then East Manessa is in the top right. We have Gad over here on the far east. Ephraim is just below Manessa. Dan, which is down here, but there's also a city named Dan at the very northern part of the kingdom of Israel. And Dan's going to be, I'll talk about it later, but Dan's going to be known for idol worship. Um, the tribe of Benjamin right here is sandwiched in between Judah and Ephraim. And then Reuben, that firstborn son, his territory, his tribe's territory, is on the far east below Gad. And then you have Judah with this huge territory. And then Simeon, who is, uh, ooh, what did I just say? Levi. Levi's cohort is contained or trapped within the territory of Judah. So they don't have, they're, they're landlocked. They can't go out without Judah's permission, essentially. 
So the Levites wouldn't gain their own land, but they would live among the tribes. And Simeon's land would be within the stronger tribe of Judah, preventing these two tribes from rising up against the others. I mean, these guys were very ruthless, and you can read that in the story of Dinah. Let's get on to Judah, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. What do we know from that period right there? He's going to be victorious over his enemies. His brothers are going to praise him. And his brothers are going to bow down to him. He's going to be ruler. Who do you bow down to? God and kings, right? God and kings is who they bowed down to. Verse 9, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, he to come... Excuse me. Until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Is this talking about Judah, is the question. Of the things that will happen in the future of the family of Israel, and the world for that matter, this is the most significant, what's recorded here for Judah. Let's read why in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5. Revelation 5, verse 5. I'll read a little bit before that, actually. Um, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals, I saw, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Hmm. Interesting, right? There's a correlation that's being drawn between Revelation and Genesis, the very last book and the very first book here. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's the same. The hint is it's the same one who's the lamb of the Lord. It is Jesus. That's right. We're talking about Jesus here. That's who this is referencing to. If you read just a little further into Revelation, you will see that it's talking about your Savior, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Through the line of Judah would come the throne of King David, and through King David's line, Jesus. So verse 10 makes a lot of sense, understanding what will happen about 40 generations later. 40 generations later, after Jacob proclaims this to his son, Judah. It says this about Jesus as well in verse 11. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is talking about the plethora of wealth, the plethora of blessing, the plethora of restored creation and 
and all of that. I didn't really understand that part. <laughs> Commentaries point to a restored and bountiful creation, but I'm not entirely sure about that. I spent almost a whole hour on just, on just verse 11 and verse 12. If any of you know, if any of you gentlemen knows what it means, feel free to speak up because the idea of the restored creation, I'm, I'm not completely sold on still. Um, verse 13, Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Um, Issachar is a raw-boned donkey, or a strong, lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good his resting place is, his resting place, and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. When he sees how amazing Priest Lake is, he's going to deal with the snow. He's going to put up with all the mosquitoes so that he can live in the land that's nice and, and great for him. Um, up to this point, all the brothers were named in order of their age. But Zebulun is named before Issachar, despite being younger, possibly giving him a greater honor than his brother. The blessing for Zebulun is interesting, too, because most modern maps that Bible archaeologists draw do not have the borders of Zebulun touching the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. So if we went back to that first picture, you would see, and maybe in your study Bible, you might see a picture of that map. Zebulun doesn't touch the Sea of Galilee or the ocean. But... Through this prophecy and also through the first-hand account of Josephus, a Jewish historian, that's recorded. Josephus records Zebulun's land going all the way from the Sea of Galilee all the way to the ocean. And Sidon, what's mentioned there, that's, that's, in, that's in like the sixth largest city in Lebanon. So that's way up there. Jacob declares that Issachar works hard and is treated well and is satisfied to work hard to have this nice life, this comfort that he has. Verse 16 says, Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. Dan, much like Judah's name and some others listed here is kind of a play on words. Dan's name means justice here, which is kind of interesting. But Dan's people would later worship idols. They would become famous for their, um, I don't know if heretical is the word, but for their idol worship. And the city of Dan, there's actually still a, an altar built to a false god there built by the tribe of Dan in the northern part of the kingdom. Verse 18, kind of his response to all these things that, um, that Jacob has just declared for his family in blessing. Verse 18 says, I look for your deliverance, Lord. This seems interjected here, but Jacob understands the fate of his legacy, the fate of his children. He can see through this blessing that he has given what is going to happen to them, that they're going to be rebellious, that they're going to be violent, that they're going to be against each other, and that they're going to reject God. 
So his response is knowing that his kids are going to reject God. Verse 19 says, Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. And we, we can see that because Gad's territory is on the very edge of Israel's territory as a whole. So he's going to be attacked, but he's also going to be able to survive and attack them back. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Asher was that yellow territory in the very top left, the very northern, northwestern part of Israel. Huge coastline right there. Neptali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. He's going to be fruitful. His tribe are going to make lots of babies. Beautiful ones. Yeah. Uh, verse 22. Now we get into another long section that's just like Judah's. So we can see that this longer blessing carries a greater significance. And Joseph essentially is granted, as we saw previously, essentially the firstborn birthright. The firstborn birthright, he gets the extra hill that's the Amor- that uh, Jacob took from the Amorites, which is really close to where David defeated Goliath. So he gets extra land, and he also is going to get an extra blessing as well here. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessing of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers." There's a lot if you wanted to dissect all that to see what is there. But you'll notice something that is not mentioned in the other blessings. And that is references to God. Joseph is a fruitful vine, so he produces lots of fruit. His fruitful vine is near a spring, which means it doesn't run dry. It doesn't run out. It's healthy. His branches climb over a wall, so his blessing invades everything else. He was attacked, but he, but he survived. Why did he survive? Verse 24, the middle of that, because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. It's because of God that he survived all those things. It's because of God that he has all those blessings. And so Jacob recognizes that in his son, and speaks to his future as well in there. Blessed in every way by God, Joseph is made prosperous and victorious. God helps him and blesses him. Verse 27. Now this, this, this tribe is interesting. As you look through Benjamin's history and what they become and what they do. They are hardcore. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. There's a a time later in scripture when the tribes of Israel come together to enact justice on a wrong that is done. I believe it's by the the Levites. Um, 
where somebody is is taken advantage of and the uh, handmaiden is ends up getting killed. So the nation of Israel comes together to enact justice on those people, to call them to justice. The tribe of Benjamin comes out to essentially defend them or stand their ground. And I believe it's 400,000 Israelite soldiers and like 26,000 Benjamites. And the Benjamites kill 24,000, I want to say, 24,000 Israelites in that first battle. And then the Israelites retreat. Now, they're all Israelites, but those tribes retreat, regroup, and say, God, what's going on? What happened? Why have you done this to us? Are we doing the right thing? And they go back out to battle again, and Benjamin whoops him again and kills just as many people. The tribe of Benjamin is violent warriors who would inflict great casualties on their brothers' tribes. They became well-known for their left-handed special forces who were super accurate with their deadly stone slings. After winning huge battles, they would be mostly wiped out and would have to be rebuilt as a people. If you check out Judges 19, 20, and 21, you'll see all of that. They get rebuilt by their 600 remaining men hiding in the in the vineyards and when the women come out to dance from the other tribes because the tribes i'm sorry this is a side note but i think it's kind of fun um, the the tribes swear that they won't give any of their wives or their daughters to excuse me they won't give any of their daughters to benjamin because of what they did and so after they after they destroy benjamin there's only six of them 600 of them left they're mourning because how are they going to survive? One of their tribes, one of their brother groups is going to be no more. How can they go on as the nation of Israel? How can they go on without one of their tribes? And so they decide, well, none of us are going to give our daughters to the Benjamites. But if they steal them, that will be okay. <laughs> and so they instruct them to hide in the bushes, essentially. And when the women go out to dance for a festival, they go out and steal them and take them away as their wives. But anyway, anyway... <laughs> Judges 19, 20, and 21, if you want something interesting to read this evening. All of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is verse 28. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. That, if that sounds like gibberish to you, you need to go back in Genesis and read those location. That location comes up over and over again. This is the cave of the patriarchs. This is the land that Abraham bought from the Hittites to bury his wife, Sarah. And this is a significant holy place here today that, that still exists. Uh, and if you want to look it up on Google, on Google Earth, just search Hebron or Mamre, and you'll find this place. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. There I buried Leah, which is kind of a bummer because uh, Rachel died on the way to Bethlehem, so she doesn't end up getting buried there. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. 
the record of this blessing is interesting because it's a prophetic blessing. It's a, it's a blessing of things that will happen in the future. And when I read this and think about this, how was Jacob able to speak those things over his sons, things that had not yet happened, with such a confidence knowing that they would happen? And it's, yes, God preordained those things, but at the same time through prayer, God empowered those things to happen. He's answering the prayer and the blessing of Jacob, and Jacob is at the same time being faithful to the will of God. It's much like a prayer to God for the fulfillment of the things requested. But it is done so with the confidence that is more than just saying nice things about somebody. Like, you're going to grow up to be a great kid. You're going to grow up to be a great skier. It's said with the confidence that that is assuredly going to happen. Because God's going to make it happen. Isaiah 65, 16 says, Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. So Jacob doesn't have the power to make these things happen. He's doing them by the one true God. Jacob blessed them with the assurance that God was going to fulfill his blessing. To proclaim a blessing like this to someone would take a supernatural power. So I think when we talk about this kind of blessing, we need to be discerning. Because I can't, I don't have the power just to say, hey, you're going to excel and you're going to be really great at these things. Not without the supernatural intervention of God can someone proclaim a blessing over your life like this. Jacob has no power to shape the future, but in faith he declares these things. And not all the blessings he gives are good. Some of them are judgments for past actions that would not just affect those sons, but their descendants for the rest of history. Things that still stand today. So understanding the purpose and meaning and outcome of the blessing is important, but I think all of that naturally leads us to say this. Okay, that's their blessing. That's what they got. Do I have a blessing? Do we all have a blessing? And if we do, what is it? That's great for them. What about me? Right? It's going to be hard to try to fit the topic of blessing into one sermon, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> I wrestled with that all week. Like, how am I going to fit this all into one? And I, I've decided from now on just, just to give up on that, not try to squeeze it in. But please allow me to try to answer those questions today. When we look at all that God has given us, our thankfulness causes us to recognize that we are blessed. It causes us to recognize our blessings. And whether we recognize it or not, we are blessed, favored by God and given good things. That doesn't mean that all those things will seem good. 
I was blessed to lose my finger. Some of my greatest blessings in my life. Losing my finger. Getting seriously hurt. Losing my career. Having nowhere to live where I ended up in Priest Lake. I've also been blessed with great kids and a Proverbs 31 kind of wife. We think in our minds that blessing must mean wealth and strength and all good things. But we're not guaranteed all of those things here and now. We're not guaranteed wealth. We're not guaranteed health. We're not guaranteed our own strength or anything like that. Much like those blessings that are declared for Jacob's sons in the future, some of our blessings are reserved for the future, reserved for heaven. Where we will be able to see them in all their glory, where we'll be able to truly appreciate them. Like when we think about our poverty, when we think about our weakness, We need to be aware and recognize all the blessings that God has given us. Paul was blessed by the thorn in his flesh. Now, Scripture does not say Paul was blessed by the thorn in his flesh. But you can see through his thanksgiving and how he responds to it. That he recognizes it as a blessing to keep him in his weakness, which in turn turned him to God. You know, Reuben's blessing wasn't uplifting. It was condemning. But Reuben's blessing was not only what was said to him. Because Reuben's blessing is actually similar to our greatest blessing. And that is the one that came through Judah. About Jesus. The coming Messiah who would rescue them by giving himself as a sacrifice for their sins. The Beatitudes, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, talks a lot about being blessed. Let's look at that. That's Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed, or makarios, which means happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they, were per- they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So the blessing doesn't always come with great circumstance. What's curious about the Beatitudes is that those kind of people thought that they were forsaken when they were actually blessed with God, blessed by God. The blessings that Jesus is teaching and giving here are a little strange because they're not situations you would consider as blessed. No one wants to be weak. No one wants to be persecuted or hated. Yet it is these people who are gifted and favored by God to receive the big gifts. Merciful, poor in spirit, meek, hunger and thirst for what is holy and right. These are the character qualities that the world sees as the lowest and the weakest. But God rewards them by calling them his own, showing them mercy and granting them not only the whole earth, but also the kingdom of heaven. Though all these gifts that they are given don't compare with the greatest blessing, the blessing that we have all received, the gift of Jesus, himself for us, for all eternity. Through him, pour out all the goodness and favor and happiness and commands of God. Through him, pour out all of our blessings. I'm sure all of you would trade your spiritual gifts, would trade your blessings, would trade all that you have for your relationship with Christ. Because in your relationship with Christ, you are granted all of those things. Not only himself, but granted all those things. Through him we have become children of God, a new creation. The old dies, the new is born, and God places us in the Holy Spirit who pours out the blessing of the presence of God every day. Gifted with the promise to inherit all that Christ will inherit. If you haven't heard that before, let me read that again because it's shared multiple times in Scripture. But we are co-heirs with Christ. All that Christ will receive which is everything, is all that we will receive because we are co-heirs with Christ. Without him, we have nothing, both now and forever, but with him, we have everything. We are blessed because God has withheld nothing from us. He revealed to us through his son that we are loved beyond measure. I think the real question is not what are you blessed with, it's what are you not blessed with. Because really God has given you everything. He has given you himself. As a bonus, through all of that, all good things are yours. You can say that you're blessed with a good job, great health, and a wonderful place to live. All those things should be attributed to the work of God for sure. But your greatest blessing, through whom all blessings flow, (laughs) is your Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise him through all blessings flow. Therefore, we must open our eyes and ears to recognize the things we must be thankful for. And first and foremost, that is Christ. 
the things he has given us, we must recognize because they point to our greatest treasure who is in Jesus, our greatest blessing. Many of the blessings in Scripture were conditional. Even so, our greatest blessing is the same as well. While Christ died for all, we must receive Jesus in faith. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one will get to the Father except through him. You don't get the blessings without Jesus. You don't get the Father without Jesus. You don't know God if you don't know Jesus. John 20, 29 says, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is easy to forget the blessing we have when we feel disconnected or broken or lost. The world does a really good job of trying to keep us from being thankful or to try to distract us from what we've been given. But we have been given Christ. It is his love that brings, out, brings us out of our hopelessness and sets us on the joy that never ends. Personally, it is my relationship with Christ that brings me out of bouts of depression or hopelessness or feeling disconnected or lost or broken or unworthy to receive the grace that God has given me. I know that I'm not worthy, but he gives it to me anyway. So we must recognize the reality and the truth to win out over our feelings. We are blessed by God himself. It is his love that brings us out of hopelessness and sets us on the joy that never ends. Here's a verse that sums up, it's from last week, it sums up pretty much all of this. It sums up the blessing given to Israel, the promised Messiah. It points to him as our greatest gift. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then the spiritual blessings are listed. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his will, his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he had freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we get God now. Not only his presence around us or near us, but his presence in us. No greater connection do you have with any other person in the world than you do when the Holy Spirit lives in you, when God lives in you. And it's because of him that all of those blessings, those other things that we desire, that peace, that rest, the strength, the wealth that's beyond measure. All of those things await us in Christ. And we can be patient. We can be patient because God is patient with us, right? (laughs) We are blessed and we should never forget it. Let's pray as we go into communion here. Lord, it's so often that we feel forgotten. Sometimes we feel forgotten by you, Lord. But in reality, Lord, what it is is that we have forgotten you. We have forgotten your son Jesus, what you've done for us. We fail to see all the blessings that are around us. We fail to see that we still breathe. Lord, let us not be complacent. Let us not take your blessings for granted. But Lord, through all of them, let us praise your name. Let us give you thanks, give you the credit, give you the glory. And Lord, of all the blessings that you have promised, Father, our greatest blessing is your son, Jesus. And for him, Lord, we are willing to trade everything. Father, give us Jesus. Give us confidence in the hope that he brings. In his resurrection and in ours, Lord. Father, give us confidence. In your name we pray, amen.